Good morning, everyone. A few weeks ago, a group of friends of mine and, and I spent the week in Colorado, and uh, at the end of that, that time together, we hiked the, the, the peak of Crested Butte, Colorado, which is a, Crested Butte's an awesome small little town, and, and, and centered around the, this mountain and a lot of skiing and all that kind of stuff, so we hiked to the top of this mountain, and it was 12,162 feet above sea level. Um, and one thing you may not know or notice in this picture is that I'm terrified. Uh, that's not a smile, that's a grimace. I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of the, the crowd because that's the safest place to be. If someone's going to fall, it's going to be someone on the outer edge, right? Um, I'm terrified of heights. And for me to hike this was an accomplishment. Friends that have hiked with me before have experienced my, my fear of heights. And I remember a certain part of this when we turned to kind of go up the, um, the peak and it's kind of a narrow, narrow pass and we got log jammed. And I remember this part, because there's an older couple, probably in their 60s or 70s, kind of up there, and they were, they were taking the time coming up or going down, whatever. But we just kind of stood there at, at, at this very high altitude for a few minutes, and, and my whole body is just tense. And it took everything within me not to just unleash a stream of profanities at this older couple. Like, you guys need to get out of the way, because I, I need to get up here, and I need to get right back down. Uh, I'm terrified of heights, but I did it. There's a, there's a point right before we kind of made the last turn to go up the thing where there's a scenic view. It's flat, it's beautiful, it's lush, and all this kind of stuff, and I'm like, I'm talking to myself, and I'm like, this is far enough. <laughs> this is flat. That looks dangerous. I'm just going to stay right here. The view's pretty good, and my friend Bob came up to me, and Bob's the guy with the longest beard over here on the left, and, and Bob came up to me and says, what are you doing? I said, I, I'm good, man. You guys go ahead. I'm going to sit right here. I'm going to enjoy this, this space and just do my thing. And he said, come on, man. You're going to regret not going up there if you, if you don't do it. And uh, I don't know if I believe Bob. I don't. I mean, I did it. I went up there. I sat there. I got the picture or whatever. But I'm still not sure that I completely believe Bob when he says you're going to regret this if you don't go up there. But I'm glad he encouraged me and I'm glad that he pushed me because that's what friends are for. And, and friendship is a gift from God. Friends are uh, people God sends us to encourage us to keep going further, to keep pressing on, to, to push further than we think we can. When we think, oh, this is good enough, they can say, no, you are capable of more. They pull uh, life out of us, and, 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 they, and they push us to our limits. And friendship is a gift from God. The word friend or friendship means having mutual regard for one another. People that pull for you and you pull for them. You, you rejoice with those who rejoice. You weep with those who weep. And you, you're fighting for each other, for the sake of each other, and to, to push each other to, to new heights and, and new, um, new life experiences. This group of guys is um, a group of guys called, we're part of a group called Rhythm and 20. And Rhythm and 20 is a group of about 20 guys um, that were complete strangers a few years ago. Um, but we began to meet over... Uh, once a year in, in different parts of the country, and we, we kept uh, tabs with each other over the three years, and we went from complete strangers to pretty deep and good friends. Um, we, and, and the more we got to be around each other, each year that we met, we saw a new level or a new layer of friendship being developed, a new layer of trust and vulnerability and richness and just sweet friendship, sweet conversations and great experiences with each other. And, and the people that created Rhythm in 20, I think, uh, kind of get this idea that, that building friendships as adults can be hard, it can be difficult, and you have to carve out time and be intentional about doing these things. Um, because when we were kids, we, we kind of built friendships with, based on proximity, who you went to school with, who you played sports with, 
uh, who lived next to you, your neighbors. And, and, and building friendships as, as children was pretty easy. We were innocent and we were around each other a lot and, and just proximity kind of created friendships for you. But as we become adults, I think this idea of, of building life-giving friendships becomes more and more challenging. A part of it is because we don't have as much proximity in those different contexts. Maybe you work, but maybe you hate the people you work with and you don't want to build deep friendships with them. And so that kind of throws it those out, out, of the, out of the way. Um, as we become adults, we get busier and busier. Uh, as we have children... If you guys have kids, you just kind of know time becomes more and more precious, more and more thought for. And we get busy with work, we get busy with, with children, we get busy with, with hobbies. Maybe we exercise an hour a day or watch Netflix an hour a day, and so time gets squeezed there. And the thing that's easiest to kind of cut out of our rhythm and cut out of our, our lives is time for friendship, time to connect and, and, and build deeper, life-giving relationships. Also, even with technology, we have Twitter, we have Facebook, we have all these different things that help us connect with way more people, but we connect with people on a more superficial level. We have a hard time breaking through that and, and building into um, putting these deeper friendships and relationships. And this is a national or maybe international thing, epidemic. It, it impacts the quality of our life. In fact, the Surgeon General has said repeatedly and in multiple times, our current Surgeon General says, the greatest health risk in our country is not obesity, it's not diabetes, it's not cancer, it's isolation. The greatest health risk in our country is isolation. And people that live uh, lives that are isolated tend to be higher risk for cardiovascular disease and higher risk for strokes and, and see Alzheimer progress further and faster in their lives. And, and people live in isolation leads to uh, depression, which has its own set of health consequences as well. So the Surgeon General says the greatest health risk in our country is not these things that we might typically think. It's actually isolation. And we're seeing science begin to back up and validate the thing that Scripture has said since the beginning that it's not good for man to live alone. It's not good for man to be alone. Over the past month, we've been looking in the book of Genesis at what God created in, in Genesis chapter one, and God created all these different things. And he said, this is good, this is good, this is good. So uh, light and darkness, good. The, the land and the oceans, good. Animals, creatures, vegetation, mankind, time, good. So chapter one is full of things that God created and said was good. And as soon as we get to chapter two, we see something a little bit different. We see something that's not good. And let's just read real quick and see what it says. God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper, a companion. Now we've talked about this word good in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 now. Uh, this word good is the Hebrew word tov, which, which has four different implications, four different things. It means quality craftsmanship. So when something's good in the eyes of God, it means it was, it was crafted with quality, uh, with quality control and, and quality craftsmanship. The second thing that it means is uh, intentionality that God created it intentionally. The, the third implication of the word good is that God created things to be in harmony. And then the fourth implication of the word good is that God created something in order to be enjoyed. And so we think about this in the context of relationships, in the context of, of friendships. This word good makes complete sense. And when God says it's not good for man to be alone, it means it's impossible for us to live quality life. It's impossible for us to live a quality life apart from relationships. It's, a part, it's impossible for us to live a life of harmony without relationships. It's impossible for us to live life the way God intended apart from being in relationship. And it's impossible to truly enjoy life without being in relationship with each other. God created us. He wired us to be relational. And he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And if you think about it, even monks live in solitude in the context of community. They're quiet together, right? 
there's still community aspect even of, of, of monks. Um, so God created us to be in relationship. And what he says here in Genesis 2.18 is that um, I'm going to give man a helper and a companion. Now, in the context of this story, this is when God uh, creates Eve as, as Adam's helpmate. And, and when we hear the word helper in, in the American culture, in our English context, we almost immediately go to that, the image of servant, someone lesser than. But one thing I want to push back on with that, especially in this, in this chapter in Genesis when God creates Adam and Eve. So when God creates Eve, it's not so that Eve can be a servant or be lesser than. In fact, the word helper here, azer, is used like 20 times in the Old Testament. And most of the time, it's talking about God being a helper, and God is not lesser than. So when God creates Adam and Eve, he creates them as equals, equal in value. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1. It says, God created male and female in his image. So when God creates Adam and Eve, and Eve is his helper, it doesn't mean helper in the sense of servant or lesser than. It means, uh, in a sense, it means the opposite or the complement. Someone that pulls, pulls um, that, that complements the weaknesses of the other person. So when God creates us to be in a relationship, he creates us to have relationships with, with people that complement our weaknesses, that our strengths and their strengths work together, and that we push each other to be better and, and grow. He also says, I'm going to create someone that's suitable for Adam. Or the message translates it, someone that's a companion. So it's someone that's different but also equal. We have the same stature, the same value, but in our differences, we push each other to be more. So God created us in, to be in relationship with people that are on the same level as us, but that push us to be more and that increase the quality of our life, that teach us how to live life in harmony and intentionality and beauty, that teach us how to enjoy life. So God said it's not good for man to be alone, and he created friendships for us. Now, the context of Genesis 2, of course, is Adam and Eve, husband and wife, and there's some language there. But what I would argue, and I think it's almost obvious, is that this isn't just specific to the context of marriage. This is, this is given for all of us. Jesus never got married, and he had friends, and he had a full life. He lived a, an abundant life. There's plenty of examples throughout Scripture of people that were single, that lived a full life. And God says, I've created you to be in a relationship, not just with the opposite sex, not just with, with, with a marriage partner, but with friendships. So God created us to be friends, to have relationships. And when I say the word friend, I don't just mean an acquaintance or someone that has a kindred spirit. Like, there's so many people out in the world, right? And, and even introverts, introverts are like, I don't need to be in a relationship. I'm good, right? I'm cool. Um, and extroverts may say, I want all the friends. Give me all the friends. Well, this word for, that I'm talking about with friendship is not talking about a million acquaintances or uh, being in isolation. It's, it's actually just a handful of people that you actually have the bandwidth for to go deep and have life with, to do life with. So it's not just acquaintances, because a lot of us have plenty of acquaintances, but some of us may struggle to have truly deep friendships. The word companion, when you break it down in the etymology of the word, is someone that you break bread with. Think calm with, like chili con queso, chili with cheese con, so calm with. Panion, think Panera. So a companion is someone that you go to Panera with, right? right. Someone you break bread with. That's the literal translation of the word. Someone that, that's on your level. When I think about this word companion and the meaning of it, someone that you break bread with, what I think, what it kind of points to is, who, is, who are the people in your life that when you have the in-between moments to grab a drink, to grab coffee, to break bread, to go to Panera, whatever, who are the people that you gravitate towards to do life with? Who are the people that you break bread with to, to process, to vent, to celebrate, to question, to dream? Who are the people that in the in-between moments you pull them aside and say, let's catch up, let's get honest, let's get open with each other. And also someone you have fun with. I think, I think implied in friendship is, 
is you have fun with them, you enjoy their company, they give you life. Who are the people that you choose to do life with because they give you life, they, they breathe life into you, you feel refreshed and rejuvenated. And when we look at Jesus, Jesus had the crowds. There's people that are always around Jesus at, at all times, just surrounding him. But if you go beyond the crowds, Jesus also had 20 to 30 people that he really considered probably his family. Uh, you have the 12 disciples, of course, but you have people like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. You had, you had a crew that was, that was more around Jesus, and those are his friends. But then you get to the 12. Now, the, the, the 12 that Jesus hung out with, he spent his entire three years day and night with them. So you have the 12. He had, he had an intentionality where he dug deeper with certain people. And even within that 12, Jesus had three that, that, that church people, uh, church scholars sometimes refer to as the inner three. This is Peter, James, and John. And for those three, Jesus pulled them aside in moments where no one else could see, and he was his most vulnerable self. He was his most true self. One story we have of Jesus with the inner three is called the story of the transfiguration, where Jesus went up on the mountain with those three, and God came down and began to, to speak truth to Jesus. And it said that Jesus' face began to shine like the sun. And Jesus was revealed in his true glory and his fullness as the son of God. And he showed that side of himself to those three. So they saw him in his greatest moments. This is part of my true identity. This is who, who I truly am. And then in his darkest hours, right before he's going to the cross, he pulled the three guys aside and says, I want you to come and pray with me because I am overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. And he prayed, and he sweat, drops of blood, and, and they were invited into that moment of vulnerability with Jesus, and they fell asleep. Great friends, right? Jesus had the crowds, he had the 20, he had the 12, but he had the three. He, he was intentional about who he spent time with and, and intentional with who he lived life with in this way. He was a companion. There's also a story where Jesus is surrounded by the crowds, and his family comes to, to, to try and get him because they think he's crazy. And someone comes in and says, hey, Jesus, your family's here. They want to see you. And Jesus looks around and says, who is my family? Who are the people I do life with? It's the people who, who do the will of the Father. It's the people who are about the things that I'm about, who, are, who have the same values that I have, who have the same mission that I have. These are the people that are my family. And Jesus gives us this, this glimpse of, hey, friendship is, is meant to be shared with people who are on the same journey as you. Now, that's not to say that they're exactly the same as you. I don't think friends are meant to be echo chambers that just say yes to everything you want to do or, or flatter you or give you all the, all, the, all the answers you want to hear. There's a lot of tension and diversity that brings growth. But when we look at the big picture values, the big picture trajectory of life, Jesus says the people that are my family, that are my true family, are the people that are on the same trajectory as I am, that are, that are going after the same big, big picture things that I am. Because who I'm around, who we surround ourselves with impacts our character. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. So friendship is built around the people that have the same, perhaps, worldview, the same way of seeing things and enjoying things. Tim Ferriss is a famous author and, and, and blogger and podcaster, and, and someone's asked him, hey, well, if, if you could say, one of his famous questions to people he interviews is, if you could put something up on a billboard what would it say and where would it be? And so someone flipped the question on him, said, hey, Tim Ferriss, if you could put something on a billboard, a statement on a billboard, what would it say and where would it be? And his statement was, you are the sum total of your five closest friends. You are the sum total of your five closest friends. Now, this is something that Scripture echoes throughout the Bible. Paul says like this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Proverbs, Solomon says like this, Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. 
So who we choose to do friendship with and have this type of deep life-giving relationship with has a dramatic impact on our character, our values, our vision. We have a choice now as, as adults. We can choose who we want to do life with. And because time gets so uh, scarce, we need to make wise choices of who we choose to do life with because they rub, these people rub off on us and they, they, they strengthen us, they encourage us, um, they give us life. So before we move on to, to some more thoughts on this, just say, who, who, off the top of your head, who are the closest friends that you have? And as you think about them, look for common threads, but what does their character say about your character? So who are your closest friends? And what does their character say about your character? And as we have these friendships, how do we, how do we build depth? How do we, how do we learn to dig deeper and, and be more honest with each other. And I think Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, is an incredible writer, of course, has a great and beautiful quote and thought on, on friendship. Here's what he says. There are two elements that go to the composition of friendship. One is truth. A friend is a person with whom I may be sincere. Before him, I may think aloud. Every man is sincere when he is alone. At the entrance of a second person, hypocrisy begins we begin to cover up our thoughts. True friends are sincere with each other. The other element of friendship is tenderness. Can another be so blessed and we so pure that we can offer him tenderness? When a man becomes dear to me, I have touched the goal of fortune. So truth and tenderness. And when he says truth, I think there's two elements to truth, and I'll unpack this more as we go, but Two elements of truth. One is just be, being able to be who I truly am, being open and honest and vulnerable. He mentioned that. I think he ripped off Seneca, who, who said this about 2,000 years earlier. He says, when I find someone that's a friend, I speak to him. Like I, I speak to him as if I was speaking to myself. I'm so open and honest with, with this person because I've, I've, I've decided to trust them and to be completely vulnerable with them, that I speak to them as I speak to myself in my head. There's just a full level of transparency. So there's truth. And the second element of truth would be not only being true, being honest, being vulnerable, but also speaking truth. And the second piece he says there is tenderness. Now this reminds me of the description of Jesus in John 1.14 where it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus, the Word, was full of grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of a good friend. He's known as the friend to sinners. He was never afraid to call people out on their crap, to speak truth into their life, to speak bold truth in their life. He turned away really awesome prospects for his ministry because he spoke truth to them and they didn't want to hear it. He spoke truth with boldness, but he also spoke it with compassion. He was obviously full of grace. And he found this balance of what Emerson calls truth and tenderness. He was open and honest. He spoke bold truth, but he also was compassionate, merciful, humble, and gracious. So I think of Jesus when I think of this idea of truth and tenderness. I also think of Rocky III, Okay. In Rocky Three, Mr. T is the villain, the best villain of the series, I think. And there's a moment in Rocky Three where Rocky's going to go train with Apollo Creed, and Apollo's just in all these movies, but he's training with Apollo, and Apollo just gives him what for, and there's this famous speech that Survivor wrote a song about, and it's the Eye of the Tiger speech. And he's just mad. He's basically just yelling at Rocky because Rocky's given up. He's not even trying. And so he's speaking harsh truth into him. He's like, do you even want to be great again? You were great, but you've lost it. You've lost the Eye of the Tiger. And he, he says, look around the gym. There's all these other guys that are hungry. You're not hungry like that anymore. So, so Paul is just dropping hammers on him, just verbally destroying him in front of a crowd. And then a few minutes later, we see this scene. They're, 
they're running around on the beach with really short shorts and hugging each other, you know? I think Eye the Tiger might still be playing. I don't understand running in water. It seems really ineffective, but they're doing it. And so there's this moment of, of really harsh talk, real talk, where, where Apollo just gets in Rocky's face and just, just yells at him. But he does it out of love because he wants to see Rocky succeed. And a few minutes later, they patch it up. They're hugging, short shorts. It's a good day, right? There's some other stories in Scripture that, that remind me of this idea of truth and tenderness. There's a story of David and Nathan. So David's the king. He slayed Goliath. He's this guy that's really famous. He's, he's really powerful. Uh, he has a lot of people around him telling him how great he is. And he has this other friend. He has this friend Nathan who's a prophet. And right after this, the scene where David uh, takes someone else's wife, gets, gets her pregnant, and then kills the husband, and he thinks he's gotten away with it, he's the king, he's doing all good, Nathan comes up to him and just drops hammers on him and says, who do you think you are that you can take something that's not rightfully yours? That's the bold move because David has the power as a king to just kill Nathan and move on. So Nathan takes a risk and speaks truth. Their friendship could be burned, his life could be ended, but he has that rapport with David and he, and, he, and he has the courage to speak truth into David's life. And David responds in repentance. He, speak, he responds by being broken and crying out to God. And the friendship is strengthened by the truth and the tenderness shown in that moment. We all have a desire to be, to be known and to be loved. And it's a risk. When we're, when we're open and honest with how we're feeling or open and honest with who we are, there's this risk and this fear of being rejected. Um, but true friendship pushes towards that, to where we can truly know each other, be honest, speak truth into each other's lives, but also have love and, and compassion for each other. In order to move forward in that, I have a few more thoughts. One thing I would say is we have to learn how to stop being nice and start being kind. Now, I grew up in the South. In particular, my family was very passive-aggressive. They were super nice all the time, which means they never said anything of substance. Uh, by being nice, they meant they didn't really say what they felt. And so it actually prevented intimacy. It actually prevented connection because there's all this hurt and frustration that we never voiced under the guise of being nice. Now, the root word of the word nice simply means ignorant. You guys know that? Like, to be nice means to be ignorant. It means to ignore the fault that's so, and the frustration that's so plainly in front of you, to choose to ignore it uh, or, or to ignore saying something about it. It's to withhold truth. Being nice often means withholding what we think would be helpful or what we think would actually help make this relationship go further. Withholding that truth out of fear of hurting the other person's feelings. So we have to learn to stop being nice. You can write that down and take that out of context and be a jerk. I'm not saying that, right? We have to learn to stop being nice, stop being ignorant or choosing to, to withhold truth for the sake of not hurting feelings. Uh, we have to move from being nice to being kind. Now the root, word, the root for the word kind means to intentionally do good for the other person. To assertively and intentionally seek the good of the other person. So it's kind of the shift from being nice to being kind. Nice means withholding truth. Kind means speaking truth in love in order to build up. One of my favorite verses from Solomon comes in Proverbs chapter 27. He says this, Faithful are the wounds from a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And I love that there's two parts here. One, the first part, faithful are the wounds from a friend. If there's someone that you know is your friend, which means they have mutual regard for you, means they're, they're fighting for you, they're pulling for you, they're your comp they're companion, you, you get Panera together. If you're, if you're one of those kind of friends, if you know this person is for you, you know that when they speak truth, that's hard, that they're saying this because they love you, because they care about you, because they want to see you be more or, or avoid a mistake. 
Faithful are the wounds from a friend. The second piece of that is, but the, the kisses of an enemy cannot be trusted. And that's this idea of flattery. There's some people that are in your life right now that are just flatterers, that tell you how great you are, that tell you what you want to hear. And the word flattery, right, the word flattery just means to flatten out, to smooth out, to exaggerate or blow up something, to exaggerate or distort or blow up the truth. So flattery is, is another kind of form of being nice. Being nice means withholding the truth. Flattery means exaggerating the good part and ignoring the bad part. And usually when we use flattery, we're using that to get something from someone else. So the Bible tells us constantly, beware of flatterers. Beware of people that just tickle your ears, that affirm that what you're doing is awesome and how great you are. Beware of people that don't have the courage to actually be honest with you. I'm not saying be mean and tear each other down. That's not what's going on here. Flattery puffs up. Being nice withholds everything. Being rude or mean, spirited, or, or slanderous tears down. But when we speak the truth in love, we're building up. So we need to look for friendships and, and be friends that speak truth in love, that build up. That's, it's the movement from flattery to encouragement. Flattery puffs up the ego. Encouragement speaks to the heart. Encourage means, and the word courage, the root word of courage means heart. So encouragement means to speak into the heart of someone, to strengthen them up. So we move from flattery, the inflation of ego, to encouragement, encouraging someone towards um, a beautiful and holy path. It's, it's words for them, not what we can get from them. I'm super grateful for friends that have the, the guts to call me out on my crap. And I might be weird, but honestly, when I, when I have conversations with people, I'll call up my friend Greg, or, uh, who goes here, or my, my buddy Tyler, who's a pastor at another church, and I'll call them up, and I'll, and I'll just kind of start venting and kind of share what's going on. And I can trust these guys when I say, man, am I being crazy? If I am being crazy, I can trust them to say, yes. <laughs> yes, you're being crazy. You're overreacting here. They encourage me towards a, a wiser path because they help me get out of, out of my head or out of the situation that's really big in front of me. They're seeing it from a different angle, and they're saying, Tommy, I know who you want to be. I know what you want to be about, and here's a better way forward. This is where you're, you may be justified in your anger. Here's where you need to chill out. Here's where you're blowing out of proportion. And I'm super grateful for friends like that that will call me out on my junk because I need that. I don't need people to constantly tell me that everything I'm doing is great as I drive my life off a cliff. That's not a good friend, right? We need friends that will speak truth to us in love. We also need friends that are loyal and forgiving. Proverbs 18, 24 says this. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I feel like I would be blowing my job if I preached a sermon on friendship and didn't mention Sam and Frodo, okay? If you guys are Lord of the Rings fans, I have to mention Sam and Frodo, and this is a moment towards the end of the journey, right, when, when Sam and Frodo, when, when Sam's carrying Frodo on his shoulders. If you guys don't know who that is, just Google it, right? Lord of the Rings, it's awesome. But here's, the thing, here's one thing I love about the relationship between Sam and Frodo. In my opinion, Frodo is a really whiny guy. I don't know if it's just Elijah Wood, his portrayal of Frodo, I don't know. But that dude just drives me crazy, He's complaining all the time. I just want to punch him in the face, right? Like, Sam is this dude who's going over, like, crossing the world. He's like, dude, I just crossed over the swamps where dead people are coming up. Like, I'm looking at this mountain, and there's a flaming eye, right? Like, like looking at us all the time. There's a giant spider. I don't, I don't do spiders. There's this dude, Golem, who's, like, gonna, like, talking about eating us, okay? Like, Sam is a good friend. He's endured all this stuff, and he still has to endure Frodo's whining. Like, dude, you've got an awesome friend here who's going through the depths of hell 
to be with you. But Sam is a great friend. He is a loyal friend. He is a forgiving friend. Great friendship can endure disappointment. And, and, and it has to. Because if we're being open and vulnerable and, and showing people our, our ugliness, and we're saying, I need you to, and I want you to, to still love me, then forgiveness and loyalty have to be a part of the equation. There has to be a commitment to each other in order to have that openness. So great friendship requires loyalty and forgiveness. We have to learn to forgive people. And this is so obvious and so overstated in, in the Christian faith, this idea of forgiveness. It's just, oh yeah, forgiveness. Jesus forgive us, whatever. We get, we get that. But for me, I don't know about you guys, like I hear that all the time, but then as soon as someone ticks me off, man, I throw them overboard. Like immediately don't forgive them. I can immediately forget, oh yeah, forgiveness sucks sometimes. Like it's hard. It requires me letting go of my justified in my head anger. Forgiveness requires resilience and grit. It's a commitment to a bigger picture. And if we want to be good friends and find good friends and develop friendships, we have to be willing to forgive each other for our mistakes, for our ugliness, because that's how we grow in vulnerability and openness and honesty. That's how we begin to speak truth into each other's lives when we're able to endure disappointment. We see this right at the very beginning. God says it's not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to give Adam Eve, and they're going to have this relationship, and they're going to be for each other, and that's going to be good. And then a chapter later, Eve says, hey, you want to eat some fruit? And a chapter later, a few verses later, Adam says, God, the reason I messed up is because of her, and you gave her to me. So really, it's your fault and her fault. This is like, God said, I'm giving you guys each other for your good. And the first two things they do is, is talk each other and doing something stupid and then throw each other under the bus. This is not a great start to a friendship. Soon after that, they're married, they have children, and they suffer the horrendous grief of one of their kids killing another one of their kids. This is the start of friendship in Genesis. This is the start of relationship. There's, there's a brokenness and a disappointment there's weakness, there's ugliness. It's just brutal. But they stick it out. Even in the ugliness, there's loyalty and forgiveness. Now, I'm not saying you should go jump into a relationship like that, okay? Like, that's messy. That's heavy. I mean, that's like level 10 trauma stuff, right? But as we build friendships, we have to learn how to have grit and for forgiveness. We see this also in Jesus and Peter at the end of, end of the journey. Uh, Peter and Jesus, uh, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's speaking encouragement to, to Peter and the disciples. And he turns to, to Peter and he says, hey, Satan's been asking us to give you over to him, which is a weird statement. And if I'm Peter, I'm like, what? Wait, what? Satan? Like the Roman soldiers I was on board with, but Satan, right? He says, Satan's been asking for, you, for your head. And I said, no. Okay, says, we're good. I said, no. But Peter, you are going to fail. You're going to betray me. And my prayer for you is that you will recover from your failure. And in that recovery, you will be strength to other people. You will show them that there is freedom to fail. And they will be strengthened by your recovery from failure. Now, if I'm Peter in this moment, I'm like, man, I really wish you would just would have prayed that I don't fail. Like, you're Jesus. You're righteous. When you pray, I think things probably happen. I prefer that you pray, I don't fail. But, he, Peter, but Jesus tells Peter, you're going to fail. My prayer for you is not that you won't fail. My prayer for you is that you will recover from your failure. 
go on a few chapters, Peter does fail. He betrays Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross, comes back from the grave. And in John 21, we have this beautiful story of the, the restoration of Peter and Jesus. And Jesus comes to him and just shows him love and forgiveness and grace. And he challenges him to be a leader. Hey, be the leader that God's created you to be. This story isn't over. And so we see in the story of Peter and Jesus this epic failure, this epic, huge betrayal. But we see a restoration. We see a forgiveness. We see a grit to their friendship. There's a model of that. Like, as we learn to do life with each other, and as, as we learn to open ourselves up and be honest and vulnerable with each other, there's going to be frustration. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be ugliness. But we also have to be forgiving and loyal and stick through it. God said at the beginning, all these things were good, but the one thing that's not good is for man to be alone. And for us to build friendships, it requires intentionality. Choose your friends carefully and methodically. Enjoy life with them, but choose them because understand that they are going to impact your character, your values, and your vision for your life. But also with intentionality, carve out time for them. As we get so busy, it's easy to kind of push friendships to the side because we have our careers, our families, and these other things going on. I encourage you guys to choose your friends well and also intentionally carve out time to spend with them so you can break bread and build a history. Learn to have friendships that are full of truth and tenderness, as Emerson said. So my question for you is, who are your friends? Who, as you kind of look at this idea of companion, someone I break bread with, someone I'm vulnerable with, someone I have history with of forgiving each other for our disappointments because we were vulnerable and honest enough with each other to be disappointed in each other. We weren't just surface level nice, but we actually put skin in the game and we got disappointed and burned. Who are the people that you had that kind of connection with? And if you don't have many of those or any of those, what are you going to do? This is not a condemnation to make you feel like a loser or feel like you're alone and not worthy of friendship. It's not about that. The Surgeon General said, this is an epidemic in America. There's tons of people that live in isolation and it impacts their quality of life. Sting said it in a song, right? I'm not alone in being alone. So if you don't have people on your list um, of, of true friends, there's a lot of people in our country like that. But my encouragement to you is to pursue that, to seek that out, to seek these kind of life-giving friendships. So what are you going to do about that? Who are your friends and how are you going to, to further uh, find joy and life and beauty in those friendships? Because we were not created uh, to be alone. We were created to be in relationship. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, this morning. We thank you for the example that Jesus set for us. He was a great friend, a friend of sinners. He lived life with intentionality, and he knew that his time was sacred. His time was precious. His time was limited. But he chose to, to, to pour himself out, to be open and honest and vulnerable uh, to those around him. And I pray that we look to him for that example of, of truth and tenderness. Teach us to be a community that has life-giving relationships so that we can pour ourselves out for the community around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.